Well, as I said this morning in Sunday school, um, some of you is the first I'm actually seeing for the, since the beginning of the year and since I'm back. And so I want to say to you as well, we are very glad to be back worshiping and serving with you. Ask this morning that we turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 as we resume our studies in the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at particularly verse 16, um, but once again we're going to read that paragraph, verses 14 through 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, whose soul is birthright, for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. From verse 14, the writer of Hebrews has been impressing on his readers the crucial importance of pursuing holiness without which he warns no one will see the Lord. And the need for them to ensure that no one falls short of the grace of God, thereby defiling other believers. Indeed, these are very serious warnings, reminding us that in the Christian life, there is no place for careless complacency. And continuing along this line, he urges them in verse 16 to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, whose soul is birthright, for a single meal. Pornos, from which we get our English word pornography, is the word that is used here in verse 16. Translated as fornicator, pornos in scripture is confined not just to sex before marriage, but to any illicit sexual activity, whether in the married or unmarried state. So that premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and other related sexual sins, of course included in that would be pornography, renders one a fornicator according to the word of God. The readers of the epistle are encouraged to see to it, they are to ensure that no one is sexually moral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And as we'll come to see, there's some grammatical difficulty. From a grammatical standpoint, there's some uncertainty as to whether the description sexually immoral is referring to Esau or just unholy or both. 
Suffice it to say that according to our text, to be sexually immoral, to be involved in any form of sexual activity outside the God-ordained boundary of marriage, or to violate the marital bond while married, is to be unholy. Now, all too often in the church, the subject of sex is either trivialized, that is to say, discussed in a cavalier, careless fashion that is not suitable for the pulpit. And if it is not taboo, then there's the other extreme where it is tabooed, it is treated as being totally off-limit as far as any kind of discourse in the church from the pulpit is concerned, so that virtually nothing is said about the subject. And for sure, we want to make it clear that any subject, any discussion rather, on this subject must be handled with sensitivity, it must be handled with discretion, it must be handled with decorum. We are never to be flippant in discussing this matter. We are not to joke about it, and sometimes it's so horrible to see what obtains in many a church when the subject is touched on. But the point I'm making this morning is that we cannot afford to be silent on the subject, for as one Bible teacher pointedly asked, when the church whispers about sex and the culture yells about it, whose voice is going to be heard? And as we know very well, the answer to that question, we know very well the answer to that question. Because more and more today it appears that the voice of the church is being stifled, is being silenced, is being suppressed on the matter of sexual ethics, on the matter of sexual purity, even as the culture is running wild, is running rampant with respect to this matter of sexual ethics. As a result, many a preacher is fearful of being branded as being legalistic or fundamentalist. They shy away from the subject. They capitulate to the culture, taking a stand of what we might call political correctness with such statements as follows. We should be preaching more of the gospel than preaching about specific sins. Sexual sins are not the worst sins. Have you ever heard that? Yes. According to one preacher in the Southern Baptist Convention, and these, these are his words, the Bible appears more to whisper on sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Really? What we're doing this morning, what we want to do this morning is to take none of these approaches. A subject, I would say, is one that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed soberingly and sensitively. To say it is not necessary that there be teaching, uh, or one would say we could be teaching more edifying, more important truths this morning, is to be unwise. For the truth is more than we may know, sexual sins are rife among Christians. It is prevalent 
among Christians in the home, at school, at college, and yes, even in the church. It is, I would say, the silent, unspoken issue with which many a Christian grapple. The problem of sexual sins affect young and old alike. It affects Christian leaders. And as I would repeat, more than we may know, more than you and I may know. There are things that are going on in the lives of God's people where this matter is concerned that many times because the subject is never touched on, the teaching is never done from the word of God, then many end up in shipwreck. And Without doubt, what we have here in our text is a wise and timely exhortation which would say we do well to pay attention as Christians for one we, we live today, beloved, in a sex-crazed, sex-saturated culture. A culture that clearly poses a challenge to believers who would live pure, holy, godly lives. Every day we are bombarded with images, with words, with lifestyle that run counter to God's purpose. For physical intimacy. In fact, if you listen to the news and observe trends in our time, just to show you how serious and how urgent this matter is, if you listen to the news, if you watch trends in our time, you'll see that in the schools, even our youngsters, even from a very early age, are being highly sexualized. If the church is silent on this matter, then what happens when the culture is yelling about it? Grooming is the word that is prevalent in our time. It is the buzzword of our time. They talk about grooming our children. And I used to think, and I, I still do, that grooming is something that we do. Many of you did it this morning before you came here. You groomed yourself. You groomed your hair. I didn't groom my hair, but I groom my body. We groom our pets, our horses. Really the word that should be used, and here's again is another example of political correctness. Really the word that should be used is perverting because that's what they're doing to our children. That's what they're doing to our youngsters. And the sad fact is that here in the state of New Jersey, we have one of the most liberal forms of government that are perverting our children. We are celebrating today, how many, how many years is it? We said the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Somebody says that our subject this morning is not important. And I say, if you think it's not important, then here's the point. What we are faced with in our society where abortion is concerned is directly related to this problem of sexual ethics being perverted in our 
time. And it is something that we must address from the word of God if we are to be faithful to the word of God. Says the author of Hebrews to his readers, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. As the King James Version more correctly puts it, I believe, see that no one is a fornicator or is unholy. Of course, he's going to talk about Esau. We'll get into Esau at some point. But I feel constrained to look at this subject this morning because it, I believe, is a most pertinent subject for our time. And as I said, this matter needs to be dealt with sensitively. It needs to be dealt with seriously. It needs to be dealt with urgently. So bearing in mind, of course, we have age group that is sensitive will never be saying anything that is would be considered out of bounds. Now, in context, this instruction is given to the church with respect to its members, those who are professing believers in Christ. It is not being given to the world at large. The writer is addressing God's people in the context of the local church, and the writer is saying, remember now he's writing from the standpoint of apostasy, the context of potential apostasy, and among the instructions he gives, he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Implicit in this instruction, this exhortation, is that as Christians, we're to be our brother's keepers when it comes to this matter of maintaining sexual purity in our lives and in the church of Jesus Christ. We're to be our brother's keepers in helping in in an edifying way the church, the body of believers, so as to ensure that no one is going off the rails in this area of their lives, is what the writer is saying. Which also suggests that the church cannot take a hands-off Approach acting in a manner that suggests, well, it's none of my business that so-and-so might be living this way. It's none of my business. It's their personal business. No, the word of God, particularly as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, say, says this, it's very much the church's business. The question is, how then does the church see to it that no one is sexually immoral, that no one is practicing sexual sins, that no one is leading an unholy, ungodly life. It's very serious because somebody says, well, why are we making a big ado about it? Because the writer of Hebrews does it. Because later on in chapter 13, verse 4, he's going to issue this warning. He's going to say this. He says, marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled, but Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And the question is, how does the church see to it that in its ranks there is not individual or individuals, there are not individuals who are leading such lives? Let me suggest two ways as set forth in Scripture. In fact, it's three ways. Number one, 
It's by church discipline. Church discipline. And write down 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. We'll come back to that in a minute. But one sad fact is that many a time in churches, church discipline is, we would say, abused in terms of being overly done, particularly when it comes to sexual sin. So we need to say that right off the bat. And let's be clear on this, sexual sin is serious. It is no light manner, and it must be dealt with seriously. In fact, I would say very seriously. Why? Because it is potentially scandalous to the name and testimony and cause of Christ. So the question is, further question is, how should church discipline be exercised with respect to sexual and other sins? Say, for example, that the church knows about it. Say, for example, a member, there should be a member falling into this area. How does the church deal with it? And according to the word of God, first of all, church discipline should be exercised constructively. It should be exercised constructively. That is to say, it should not, it should not be done with a view to hurt and humiliate the sinning member. It should be done rather to help him or her toward being what? Restored, restored in their walk with the Lord. Because notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should do what? Restore him, restore him. We should not be judgmental. We should not be harsh. We should not come down with a heavy hand. He says church discipline, he suggests rather church discipline should be exercised constructively. The point is restoration and not rejection should be the goal of church discipline. I say this because what we find in some churches, um, at first blush, people are put out of the church. I don't think that's the position the Word of God is taking, and we'll come to that in a minute. Not in a literal minute, but I'll come to it. Second, church discipline should be exercised compassionately. It should be exercised compassionately. It should be done with sensitivity, Because Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, going back to Galatians 6 verse 1, Galatians 6 verse 1 says this, Restore him how? In a spirit of gentleness. When dealing with those who have fallen into sin, such as requires church discipline, we should not be unduly harsh, is what the word of God is saying. We should not act in a harsh, high-handed manner toward those who have been overtaken by sin. This brings us to our third point, the third respect in which church discipline should be exercised. And that is, church discipline, it should not only be exercised, as as we said earlier, compassionately and constructively. But church discipline should be exercised cautiously. Note what Paul further says as he speaks on this matter of restoring the sinning member. Galatians 6 verse 1, the last clause, he says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too 
be tempted. What is he saying here? There should be a spirit of humility as we go about exercising church discipline. We should not assume an arrogant, high-handed attitude regarding ourselves as being holier than the one who has fallen. We're in need of humility, Paul is saying. Why? Because of our own proneness, because of our own proclivity, because of our own vulnerability to falling and failing. But then fourthly, and here's where we need to balance the truth, church discipline, and even more so when it comes to the matter of sexual sin, should be dealt with firmly. It should be dealt with forthrightly. There must be tenderness, there must be sensitivity, but if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is speaking there not simply of a person who has fallen into this area, but of a person, a, a believer, who is willfully, deliberately, stubbornly living a lifestyle as such. And Paul, in instructing believers as to what they are do, to do, in such setting, he says, when you are gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus and my spirit with you, he says, deliver such an one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of Christ. I know that passage is a bit technical, but essentially what Paul is calling for is what? Excommunication. Excommunication where there is impenitence. Excommunication where persons are brazenly, defiantly living in known sin. You see, the Corinthian Christians were adopting a posture, which many do in many churches today. What were they doing? They were priding themselves in how tolerant and affirming and cool they were toward the individual who had so lived. Particularly this man in question who was leading a life of open public sin. Churches today will say and they'll put up on their billboard, we are an affirming church. And what they're really doing is confirming souls to a Christless eternity. As one writer suggests, they were no doubt declaring God's love and acceptance of all types of sins. What were they doing? They were, in effect, being complicit. They were compromising, they were refusing to honor the word of God to maintain the purity of the church. How does the church see to it that one, that one in its rank or persons in its rank is, living, is not living in such manner by exercising church discipline aimed not at rejecting but at restoring those who have fallen and removing from fellowship those who are unrepentant with respect to dealing with sin. But second, the church sees to it that no one in its ranks is sexually moral or unholy. Here's a second way. By admonishing and exhorting through the preaching of the word of God, such as we are doing right now this morning. And that is also a form of discipline. 
Because discipline is not just simply punitive, discipline is also preventive. And one of the ways that discipline is exercised in the church, it is through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God is designed to keep us straight. The church sees to it that no one falls into the practice of sexual immorality and unholiness by declaring God's word on the matter, declaring it uncompromisingly, declaring it without fear, declaring thus says the Lord. And we do that, for example, by warning from God's word, by warning from God's word that contrary to the trend of our culture, sex outside of marriage is not a new morality. It is not an alternative lifestyle, but an aberrant way of life, a life that is averse to the word of God. A way of life that's expressly forbidden by the word of God such that those who are given to such manner of living will not see the kingdom of God. Verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Because remember what Paul says here, he says, follow holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. That's a timely warning. He says, do not be deceived, because here's the point. We are living in a day and age where the culture is deceiving people into the fact that just because it's popular, just because it seems to be the order of the day, then it must be all right. And Paul says here, declaring the word of God, he says, do not be deceived. Here's what he says. In clear categorical terms, he says this, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, citing sexual and other related sins as a work of the flesh, he says in the most stern fashion, Galatians chapter 5 verse 21, he says this, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word of God is saying here this, that if a person is a professing believer in Christ and is and, and is practicing any kind of illicit sexual activity, be it pornography, Adultery, sex before marriage, any kind of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage or within the bonds of marriage that is not according to the word of God constitutes a sin against God for which one will be barred from the kingdom of God. That needs to be said in our time. Yes, we need to say it with sensitivity. We need to say it with compassion, but we also must say it forcefully. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, he informs the Ephesian Christians, he says, for you may be sure of this. It's like one, one would say, you can mark it down 10. He says, for you can be sure of this. In other words, if you're not sure of anything else, you can be sure of this. Here's what Paul says. That everyone 
who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If that is true, why would we be afraid to declare that? That's what God says. God's word says that if as a Christian, one is dabbling, one is being defiled in a way that one is practicing such sins outside the will of God, one is engaged in those activities, one is not going to see God, one is not going to enter the kingdom of God. It matters not how much one talks, it matters not how much one prays, it matters not one's profession. If you are living like that, you are not going to heaven. As a safeguard against believers falling into sexual sin, we should warn that they should not allow themselves to be deceived by the culture or by anyone on this matter. As Paul warns in Ephesians 5 verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We should warn them as did the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually moral and adulterous. And I dare say, beloved, that as a church, as Christians, we must Regard seriously this exhortation of our text to see to it that no one is living in this fashion. Why? Because here's the point, here's the sobering truth, here's the frightening truth, here's the piercing truth. That even the very best of Christians, so to speak, is not immune from failure in this area. My friends, you and I could be the most godly Christian there is. We could read our Bibles, we could pray, we could preach. And yet for all that, you know what? Yes, we could be reputed for deep piety. Love for God, fervency with respect to the things of God, only to have all of that ruined on account of sexual sin. And so it matters not how spiritual we are. It matters not how spiritually mature we are. It matters not how godly we are reputed to be, given the right time, given the right situation, given the right intensity in terms of temptation. We fall, we fail miserably. We make shipwreck of our lives when it comes to this sin. For at the end of the day, apart from the supernatural grace of God, apart from God at work in us. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 18, there's nothing good that dwells in us. That is in our flesh. You say, Patrick, what are you talking about? What in the world are you talking about? Are you saying... I, and I'm not talking Patrick, of course, that is a given. Are you saying that I, that is you, I would never, that would never really happen to me because I'm so careful? 
Oh, my friends, remember David. David. Who remembers David? Reputed as the man who was raised on high, the man whom God raised on high, the anointed one of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel, 2 Samuel 23 and verse 1. Remember how this man was zealous for God? Remember his fire for God? So much so the word of God tells us in 2 Samuel 6 verse 14, out of excitement for God, he danced before the Lord. And yet how sad the sordid, adulterous affair he had with Bathsheba. That's David. A man after God's own heart. A man who loved God. A man who, who sang the praises of God. A man who was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Fail, and he failed in the most miserable, disgraceful manner. Here's the point. It can happen to you. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. And I'm not using pious language. It can happen It has happened to greater than you and me. Who remembers Solomon? Remember Solomon? Remember the beginning of of his career? How he burned a trail for God. He started out in a blaze of glory. God appeared to him in a vision one night early in his reign. He says, ask whatever you want. He asked God, and here was the piety of Solomon, the deep piety of Solomon. He says, listen, I don't want riches. I don't want the life of my enemies. He says, I want wisdom. In a manner of speaking, beloved, God was so impressed, and I use that word in context. God was so delighted with his response. He says, you know what, Solomon, I'm going to, because you asked this, and by implication it shows where your heart is, I'm going to give you far more than you are. And God blessed him. Solomon developed international reputation. His glory actually exceeded the glory of his father's kingdom. Solomon was a man whose heart was set on God. And yet, beloved, by the time we get to chapter 11, Chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, we read of his sorry decline spiritually. You say, how did he decline spiritually? And by the way, this was among other things that led to the split in his kingdom in 931 BC, where God ripped the kingdom from him, and the kingdom became ten, given to ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Here's what the Bible said, summarizing Solomon. He says, now King Solomon... This was the sign of his decline. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. What do we know about those people? God's people was not supposed, were not supposed to intermingle with them. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
By the time you get to Nehemiah, Nehemiah or Ezra is, I think Ezra or Nehemiah, one of them, is actually pointing Israel back to Solomon and said, remember, you're doing the very thing which caused even Solomon to fall. The writer is giving this instruction, beloved, in the context of apostasy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. And interestingly, interestingly, it is not without significance. Listen, it is not without significance, as we see in our time, that many a progressive apostate preacher, and I don't say this, I don't take joy in saying this, isn't it, isn't it sort of uncanny that many times you see preachers, theologians going in a certain direction, not honoring the word of God, and by the time you hear about them, what happens? They are involved in some illicit relationship. One of the signs of spiritual decay, one of the signs when our hearts are not right with God, is this very thing. We are, we are driven to descend into all kinds of sinful kind of living. And when we think of David, when we think of Solomon, when we think of others who have fallen, it's no wonder that scripture warns in the most sobering terms. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. We're going to close, and I want to make some practical application of all that I've said this morning. The text is, see to it that no one is living in an unholy manner, that no one is a fornicator, that no one is sexually immoral. It's a call to caution. It's a call to vigilance. And by way of application, let me begin by saying, young Christian, young person, what is your activity at school like, at college? When you're outside the classroom, when you're out with friends, who are your friends? Who are you talking with? Who are you hanging around? What kind of parties are you attending? What are the kinds of activities that are taking place at those parties? If, for example, you're getting into situations where your friends are given to drinking binges, then sure enough, sooner or later... That's going to open the way, the avenue to all kinds of sinful, licentious practices. Yes? Yes. And the point is, if you are to remain pure, if you are to stay true to the Lord, then you must heed the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 where he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company, evil Company corrupts good morals. What does the psalmist say? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners. You hang around the wrong company. Sooner or later, you're going to be like them. That's the point. Here are some other considerations. What kind of music are you listening to? What's on your playlist? Could you willingly, willingly, willingly and readily share those songs with your parents? Could you willingly share those songs 
with your pastors? Are they given to sexual looseness, adultery, and the like? Because here's the point. You keep on taking that which is garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. It's scary when we stop to think of it that one of Satan's tactics, one of his master tactics is getting our Christian young people to mess up. And one of the ways he does that is through the industry of music, the music industry. What with all the sexually suggestive lyrics which are designed to really steer them away from God, to seep into their subconscious mind that which is unholy, that which is ungodly, And here's the question as well. What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of movies are you watching? Are you watching movies with curse words, with suggestive sexual innuendos? You spend your time watching and listening to all these things. See how it affects your life. See how much of the Bible you desire. See how much of church you enjoy. And the two can't mix. One writer summarizes wisely this issue with these words. He says this, The eyes are a doorway to the mind, and whatever one's mind continually thinks on, a person will eventually do. If a person is going to be pure, he must be intentional about guarding his eyes. This will affect the types of movies watched, books read, and internet sites visited. It will affect how one looks at the opposite sex when perverse images are continually viewed. A person's loss can become out of control. In fact, let me pause here to say this. The psychologists are talking about tracks that are burnt in the brains when you're continually exposed to pornographic material. Conversely, a person whose eyes are continually engaging with the word, this writer says, and godly things will be controlled by them. Fruits of the Spirit will be born in their lives, love, joy, peace, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22, 23. And then as we're drawing to a close, let me say to parents that in the battle for holiness, in the battle for purity of your youngsters, are you involved in their lives? Are you seeing to the kind of company they are keeping? Are you seeing to what they are watching, to what they are listening to? You have a youngster and, you know, he, you can't look at his cell phone. You are paying the bill. He is living on, or she is living under the roof. You can't see this. Let me say this. You are in for trouble. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, and of course, as they get older, we have to recognize that, yes? And we have to be wise and know how we relate to them, especially as they 17, 18, and so on. But let me say this. It cannot be a free-floating situation where our teenagers are just allowed to have their cell phone in their rooms, their computer in their... What in the world are they watching? Who are their friends? Do you know that? What kind of persons are they? What kind of activities are you leaving them up to unsupervised? And let me say a word to men. And Mark, I speak as a man to men. I speak as one of you. Very serious. How is it with your spiritual life? Your relationship with your wife? 
Are you in the word of God and in prayer daily? Are you living joyfully and contentedly with your wife? Note this scripture, Proverbs 5, 15 through 21. Don't turn to it now. But that's a good scripture to note. And here's the point. If that is out of sync, if our relationship with our spouses are out of sync, then we are on a road in which we are most vulnerable to spiritual collapse. How is it with your eyes on the street when no one is around? I mean, a simple thing like that. How is it with your eyes on the street when nothing, when no one is around? Do you find yourself taking that second, that third, that fourth look? And here's where spiritual character comes in. We have to be men of integrity, spiritual integrity, that even if no one is around, We discipline ourselves, and by the grace of God, we know we shouldn't be doing that. It's easy to do it and just pass it off and say, well, it's natural. But here's the point. That's a sure pathway to spiritual defeat, to falling. How is it with your eyes on the street when no one is around? How is it with your thought life? What are you watching on TV, on the Internet? Are you getting involved in pornography? You say, you shouldn't be talking about that here, pastor. That's disrespectful. No, it's not. (laughs) Whether by way of Zoom on the internet, those who will be listening after, here's the point. This is a real stuff, you see? And many times we never see the sobriety, the seriousness of it until it happens. And we must never, ever take anything for granted. Why? Because here's the point. Every single person has within him or her, even though saved, the potential for the most grievous sin, including this preacher. And then a word to ladies. What about your daughters? And this is a rhetorical question. Why are your daughters being allowed to leave house? Once again, this is a rhetorical question. (laughs) Why are your daughters being allowed to dress a certain way and leave house? Youngsters under your roof should come under your control. For I know Abraham that he will command his house after him. It's a shame really how it is that even in Christian homes, women, mothers can allow their daughters. They actually, in a real sense, bring them low to be objects of lust. And it's not God-honoring. We're to glorify God in our bodies. We're to glorify God even in the manner of dress. And we are to put our foot, feet, not our foots, we're to put on our feet when it comes to see. And by the way, it goes for our youngsters too, our young men too, you see. They must be dressed properly, not provocatively. 
I close on the note in which we should close. And to say this, beloved, I close with the reality of the saving power and grace of God. The saving, sanctifying power and grace of God. If you're a believer, let me say this morning, and I address myself, if every single person here this morning and listening by way of Zoom, it might not apply to you directly, but here's the point. In another sense, it, 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 it should be applied. But for those who are struggling, particularly in the area of sexual sins, and even other sins, it might be drinking. The good news is that you don't have to live under its dominion. Here's what you need to do. You need to recognize that apart from God's grace, you'll never live the way God would have you live. You might be struggling with guilt. You might be struggling and you're saying, listen, boy, I'm, I made a mess. I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. Here's the point. There's a reality of God's forgiving grace. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can get up and we can move on. It doesn't matter. Look to Christ and his grace. If you're not saved this morning then Christ can save. And he can not only save, but he can keep. He can sanctify. And you need to trust him before it's too late.